Welcome, my friends, to the podcast that never ends, where we gather our clan and talk about peace and love in our lives, the difficulties along the journey, and how we rise up. We will experience a little thing I call cluberty together, find our sweet spot, and planting our seeds to watch them grow in our magic garden. I'm Uncle Dave, and our transformation starts right here. Hey now, and how are you doing? Welcome to the next episode of Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. We're going to bring on one of my favorite people, Harry Pickens, who you're going to find out so many interesting things. Harry has lived several lifetimes. He's a master pianist. He's met the Dalai Lama. He is one of our havening Mount of Rushmore people that I'll call it. It's my title. Nobody else's. Uh, he's really just, when you see him, not only physically his stature is huge, but really just meet Harry. You'll never forget somebody like Harry. How you doing, Harry? How's things going? Man, I'm, I'm doing great whenever I get to hang out with you. I'm really, <laughs> really well. Thank you, David. And thank you for saying those nice things. Yeah, they're all true. I promise you. Uh, you know, every time I, I, we've, we've met in, in, in physical terms and we've, you know, through COVID, you and I have had a couple of conversations. It's just charges up my day. So I, I really back at you and, and thank you so much. And so I know uh, the, the world conference is coming up and uh, some of our peace and love is to help people. And you're definitely one of those professionals who are helping people uh, get past through traumas and stuff like that. Why don't you explain what you, what your role is in, in terms of havening? Well, havening wise, I am a mentor and trainer and I've had the privilege of training, gosh, mentoring a couple, 200, 250 folks, um, maybe 50 or 60 who've gone on to become practitioners and so forth. And um, I support the overall Havening community. I wrote a 400-page book called Harry's Havening Handbook, which is kind of a comprehensive guide to the modality. I lead a number of um, Havening groups you know, on, online. The, the COVID situation kind of shifted things around a lot. So it brought people online and also gave, gave us access to people. So I've got people from all over the world who I see every Monday morning. We do a session called the Self-Havening Smorgasbord on mindful um, havening practices. So all sorts of things in that arena. Yeah, they're incredible. I mean, I've been on a little bit between balancing between my day job and listening. Uh, they're just incredible. Every episode comes in as you know valuable for exactly what it comes down to I, that's the incredible piece and i've you know read the handbook uh, uh, you know which is really the textbook of uh, the best textbook of of havening that there is you know it, it not only explains some of the techniques but it also gives the practical pieces of it well i realized that you know when when, when everything locked down a little over a year ago um I developed a lot of materials for my own trainees and I felt as part of the, 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 this is a way of helping people during this difficult time. I just compiled lots of things that I'd already written and had been using with my own trainees and thought, you know, this could be valuable for the whole community around the world. So I actually got a couple of people working on translations, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I could only imagine that. Yeah. Now, around the world, uh, so speaking about around the world, not only in Havening, but uh, you've been a well-traveled uh, musician. Yeah, back in the day, I mean, um, I got I had the privilege when I was in my 20s of being in, in the New York area and performing with lots of great people, Freddie Hubbard and Johnny Griffin and um, 
Wynton Marcellus and Milt Jackson and lots and lots of people over about a 10, 12 year period. And so I toured all over the, all over the world during that period of time. That was my first, that was my first career. <laughs> With that career, uh, I mean, how does it feel? I, I know we were talking a little bit beforehand, but you have received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the, uh, the Kindred Healthcare Lifetime Achievement Award in the arts. Yeah, that was in the, the, the Louisville Fund for the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, gave me that award a couple of years ago. And it was a real, a real honor because I've, I've done a lot of work, not only as a performer, but also as a teacher in the musical area and in the arts area. I'm artist in residence at the Governor's School for the Arts, which is an annual program for the most talented young people in the arts in the, in the state. And I've been there for maybe 15, 16 years. So doing, trying to use music in a way that serves our common good in whatever ways I can. Yeah, that which plays into that peace and love part for for us because uh, you really do exude uh, peace and love. Did you start? I actually I just looked at it and I've actually been been in Brunswick, Georgia. So where, where you were born? Uh, I, I I have been there because I had uh, gone there a couple of times when I used to do the counterfeit trainings, uh, and that's where uh, the FLECI is, right? Uh, the uh, FBI training facilities are, are, are right wow. near there. So cool. I had been there a bunch of times, and when I saw that this morning, I knew, I knew you were in Louisville. So how did that trip from Georgia come to where you ended up in Louisville? Well, I actually went from Georgia to New York to San Diego to Louisville, so it's a little bit longer trip than that. You know, I graduated, I graduated high school and went to Davidson College in the, in the you know, in North Carolina, and got fell in love with jazz. Transferred to Rutgers, that landed me in New Jersey for about ten years, and then um, late '80s, I moved to San Diego. I was in San Diego for maybe 10, 12 years, and then came to Louisville to actually be closer to my mom and my aunt, who at the time were living. My aunt was ill. And um, I came, I wanted to be somewhere where I was a little bit closer to them. So that's how the Louisville trip kept happened. But it, was, it wasn't Brunswick to Louisville. It was actually a couple of decades in between. Well, that's it. Life is a journey, right? It, it's, and, and it would be a fun, a fun thing if it was just a straight line. Uh, oh, you no, know, no. It, it's that zigzag line is where you, 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 you pick up people along the way, along, along our journeys for a little while. And yeah. uh, so your journey, I mean, it's a, sort of like a, a Phoenix moments and, and things like that. And you've had a bunch of Phoenix moments in your life, obviously multiple careers or multiple parts of your career. It's all still who you are. What, um, what was one of your first Phoenix moments where you would be able to, like where you would have to shift out of that ashes into growing to be the beautiful bird you are? Man, I've had, you know, I, I, I feel like I've had, a lot of Phoenix moments, but one of them, one of the, the very first one was really when I was 17 or so. And I suffered from stage fright. That was so debilitating. I would throw up for four days before a performance. I wouldn't sleep for seven days before a performance. A couple of days before a performance, my heart would start sputtering, you know, uh, and I'd have, have tachycardia, rapid heartbeat. And it was this weird thing. And I mean, you might understand this. You have something you really, really want. And there's an equally immense obstacle in between right and so the thing I wanted more than anything else at the time was to be a professional touring jazz pianist and the problem was I would freak out I'd get nervous I'd my hands cold and clammy and all that stuff and so that's that led me ultimately on a path that it led me to the personal growth path because I started studying like hypnosis and 
uh, mental rehearsal and sports psychology and all these other disciplines to try to figure out how to crack my own code of more successful performance. So I did, I learned, it took me several years. I mean, what I can do now with clients in like a session or two, it took me years to do, but I was able to learn to transform that fear into confidence over time. And that really planted the seeds for my entire career as a coach and mentor and trainer, because those things I learned when I was 17, 18, 19, um, are things I still use with people, you know? That was, that was, I'd say that was the first Phoenix moment. That's awesome. Uh, so how do you do that? How do you transfer? I mean, I, you know, not giving your deep dog secrets away, but how does one actually, when they want to face their, 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 their fears or their, something that they would want to conquer, what would be something that you would suggest them to do besides picking up well, Harry's handbook? <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing to realize is that our brain is not fixed, but fixed, but it's flexible. And you can change the way that your brain is operating by changing your mindset and changing your physiology. But the first thing I would say to somebody who's struggling is that there is a possibility for another way. The second thing I would say is begin imagining yourself, cultivating an image of who you want to be. When I, when I was speaking with stage fright issue, when I would sit down at the piano, automatically, all I would have running through my mind were all of the times I screwed up. I had these pictures of myself screwing up. I would hear myself saying I'm screwing up. Everything in my body would tell me that. And so I was literally predicting my performance in every single moment and guaranteeing that I would create a negative experience. One of the most important things that I learned to do was to begin, I learned this from the sports psychologist and hypnosis and mental rehearsal, to learn to begin to cultivate a vivid and compelling multi-sensory image of myself the way I want it to be. Because most of us are living the present out of the past. Our present experience is just a matter of the conglomeration of what we've already thought, what we've already been, what we've already felt. And in order to change, you have to actually, instead of living the present from the past, you have to live the present from your imagined future. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, you know, now we have so many tools. We've got EFT, we've got um, Havening, we've got all these different tools for clearing the emotional pain of the past. Let it go. Find a way, a tool, a practitioner. I mean, there's a million YouTube videos or whatever, but find some modality that will help you release the pain of the past so it's not invading the present moment. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is to begin acting and moving and breathing as the way you want to be, like fake it till you make it. Because what happens is, and I learned this from a thousand years ago from Tony Robbins, he was probably one of the first people to talk about this, how when you stand a certain way, or you move a certain way, or you breathe a certain way, you activate the circuitry that fits with that emotion. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the things that I did to change my stage fright, number one, I envisioned, I, I didn't know how to unhook the emotional pain of past memories. I wish I'd known that then. But I envisioned myself very vividly as the person I wanted to be. I would fake it till I make it. I would actually walk on stage with a sense of confidence and move my body in that way. And the third thing I did is I would start inventorying during the day. Every time I felt good at the piano, 
every time I had a positive memory, a positive moment, every time it felt like things were flowing, and I, I created a journal and wrote those down. At the end of every day, I would go back and I would rehearse those moments and feel them and imagine them and amplify them in my memory. And so I was, begin, I was able to begin to tap into that feeling, which I then transferred into my mental rehearsal for the next time. So, I mean, see, there's a great book by a guy named Christian Larson, who was a minister 100 years ago, and it's called A Pathway of Roses. And he says in that book something that changed my life. He says, imagine better than the best you know. Imagine better than the best you know. So stretch your imagination to begin to create an image of who you want to be. And every day you build that image, you rehearse that image, you live from that place. And what happens is over time, it changes your brain circuitry and allows you to more and more live into that which you've imagined. Long, long answer to a simple question, but that's it. Nah, I think it's a very complicated answer, right? Uh, one of the things that I love that you said was our brains aren't fixed, they're flexible. And that's, the, that's the challenge is when we're, when we have the ability to be flexible, that's what it leads us to the growth. Because if we, if we keep saying we're fixed, then we, we're fixed. But it's when you have the flexibility, it, it, yep. it, it expands so much. Yep, exactly. Absolutely. Right. So you obviously were, were successful at 17 uh, in being a performer because you, you started traveling the world. And I do want to share. It took me a few years to get over the confidence thing. But I was able to, by the time I was 19 or 20, I was, I was touring and performing and so forth. Yeah, and one of the stories I love hearing, so I I definitely would love you to share it, is that you met the Dalai Lama. Uh, I mean, so to go from a person who spent a week of not sleeping and throwing up, uh, couldn't perform, to perform with one of the, the world premier you know, personalities. That happened in 2013. And I was, the Dalai Lama was coming here to Louisville to speak. And I was invited to perform for him about a year or so before. And I also was invited to write a piece. So here's an interesting story to compose an original piece to be performed in front of 15,000 people for the Dalai Lama. Right. So that's a, that's a formula for anxiety. No pressure. No pressure. You got this. <laughs> but here's the catch. It was in May and the performance was on a Saturday morning. The Wednesday before the performance, I still hadn't written the piece. Wow. I've known about it for almost a year. And it's like, I don't know if you ever put anything, you know, put the procrastinated, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> But I, I knew something about my own creative process and my own inner wisdom. And I, I've, I've shared this story on Facebook and shared it in a couple of, actually I shared it in a, in a presentation that I did for the group Creative Mornings. It's on YouTube. But what I did, because by that point, I mean, my stage fright thing was when I was 17, 18, but the Dalai Lama thing, I was in my mid early 50s. I know that there's an inner creative process within me and an inner wisdom and an inner source of creativity. And I trust that because I've had hundreds of times now where I used to write advertising for a living and I've written music for a living. I've done lots and lots of different things where you have a deadline you have to create, you have to fulfill. In fact, like the year before the Dalai Lama thing, I'd written a, mus a musical with collaborated with a, with, a, um, with a playwright. And deadlines are your best friend. Mm -hmm. Having some time where it's like, okay, it's got to, you've got to ship, you got to deliver on that point. So Lama Lama things happening on Saturday and it's Thursday morning and I get up at five o'clock, four o'clock, sorry. And I know it's coming. 
because I have this meditative process, whatever I do. I sat in silent meditation starting at 4 a.m., opening to receive the rest, what I needed to get. At seven, I think it was about 7.11, okay, like three hours and 11 minutes later, the peace flows into my awareness like toast out of a toaster. I listen to it, I write it down, I memorize it. And then Saturday, I perform it for the Dalai Lama. And the other part of that story though, is it was a whole day of stuff before the Dalai Lama. There were performances and there were other people speaking or whatever. And the I was I'm in you have to you have to get to the place at like seven o'clock to do security screening and then you have to stay there all day. So I'm there in the green room all day long. I'm supposed to play at like two o'clock in the afternoon. So it comes time for me to perform. So I'm ready. I've, I've, I've gone through the piece. I'm ready to go. And then the people they come to get people in the green room who are supposed to go on after me. Like all these people are going to be on a panel. That's like wait a second. I'm supposed to go next. What's up? So the guy who's in charge of it, he says, you know, I'm sorry, Harry, but everything's running late. So I don't think you're going to get to play. So I've been all there all day, right? <laughs> so, all right. So I talked to a friend of mine who's involved in organizing the activity. And he says, well, here's the deal. We don't know if you're going to be on or not. But you might end up going on after the Dalai Lama perform, speaks. Or you might go on before. We don't know. But you're going to be in limbo for like an hour. So here I am. I've written the piece. It's been a year, you know, in preparation, 15,000 people, and I get there, and I don't even know if I'm going to get to perform or not. And the worst part of it is my mother, who's still living, was there in the auditorium. And if three o'clock had come and her son had not performed, <laughs> I would have heard about it for a year, right? So I'm like, oh, please, please, I hope I can perform. So the whole time, I'm literally behind backstage for an hour in limbo. I might get to do this, I might not. So the entire time I'm using what I learned when I was 17, I'm going through, I'm mentally rehearsing. First thing I did is I let go of the, I used tapping. I didn't know Haven at the time. I used some tapping for me to let go of the expectation so I would be okay either way. And then I spent pretty much the next hour mentally rehearsing, going over and over and over and over the performance until it was just like I'd done it a hundred times. So then my friend comes and he says, okay, you're on in five minutes. Like, okay, right. So I'm ready. And I go on and perform. And um, the Dalai Lama's there. I didn't get to actually shake his hand because the, here's the funny thing. I had rehearsed it so much in my mind. I rehearsed going on stage, speaking to the audience. And the, the performance is on YouTube. You can see it. Doing the performance, bowing, and walking off the stage. I didn't hear the MC say, hey, come over here. I could have come over and like said hello to the Dalai Lama on stage. I didn't get to do that because I kind of programmed it in my mind. But I got, to, I got to speak to him afterwards. And I had a really beautiful moment of connection with him. So that's like the, that's like the two secret stories. One is how the piece got written. And the second is the fact that I didn't know I was going to get to perform until literally right before it happened. That, that, that's incredible. I can't imagine, you know, not knowing and then last second, come on, let's go. You're, you're on now. Uh, well, but, that's the whole point of having to be being prepared mentally, you know, and I'm glad that I had the experience of decades of using mental rehearsal and practice. So when it counted, you know, I could draw on that. I, I actually also like, I mean, the story was, was great. What, one of the things that I did like is that you said, 
how you were able to receive the music. And I'd like you to explain that because I talk to people about receiving versus accepting and things like that. And I love the powerful words that you use. And receiving is one of those magical things. Could, could you explain that to me? You know, that's a good question. Well, because let's talk about intuition. My experience of intuition is like Napoleon Hill wrote in his book, Think and Grow Rich. He called it intu- intuitive, uh, infinite intelligence. And if you study the works of every great like poet, prophet, saint, sage, mystic, monk throughout the entire history of humanity, they all say the same thing. They all say that within every human being, beneath the surface of their conscious intelligence, there is a capacity to know, to know things that your rational mind does not know, that your logical mind does not know, and to tap into a realm of insight, wisdom, creativity, understanding that goes beyond your intellect, right? You can call it intuition, you can call it inner wisdom, you can call it source, you can call it whatever you want to call it. So I have experienced that in my life in a really, really powerful way. And it's part of my, my spiritual practice, my, my journey, my who I am, whatever. I actually taught a course, I'll probably teach the course again um, this fall, it's called Intuitive Intimacy Mastermind. Because I realized also, David, that I've, been, I've coached hundreds of people over the last 10, 12 years or so. And I realized that the one thing that I do with people that cr- cuts across, like whether we're working on healing this thing or letting this thing go or accomplishing this, I help people learn to become intimate with their intuition. That is, you, you become closer with your intuition than you are with your partner, your spouse, your lover, your, 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 your whatever because your intuition becomes this always present guide through to navigate through life. So um, receiving the creative process is a process of learning how to balance. I'll talk about your brain, like your executive network, your focus, your attention, the part of you that sets the goal, that part of the brain with your imagination network and your inner wisdom. And so the way it works is you set the goal, you do the work, you do the study, you do the preparation, and then you let go. Rollo May wrote a book called The Courage to Create that talks about this creative process. And like I said, you see it in the mathematician, you see it in the musician, you see it in the actor, you see it in the artist, you see it in the painter, you see it in the sculptor, you see it in the... The, the software designer, whatever. Whatever the creative task is, you do the work, you focus on it, you put your mind on it, you, you, know, you, you, all, you study. And then you come to a point where you run up against a brick wall, boom, and it's like, I can't go any further. That's the time you let go. And then when you let go, you open and your other than conscious intelligence, your right brain, your intuition, your source, your universe, your intimate, whatever, then the answer, the solution, the insight comes. And it's very much like you're receiving. Yeah, no. I've been, been as a musician, I've been an improvising musician, which means I'm creating music spontaneously in the moment. And when you develop that skill, you become just like anybody who does improv comedy or, or improv, you know, whatever. Freestyle rap, you're really good at that. You get to this place where you're the witness to what's happening through you. Like right now, I'm not, 
I'm not planning the words I'm going to say to you. You're not planning the words you're going to say to me, but I am acting as a witness as these words formulate and they come out of my mouth. The same is true of the creative process. So it, it is same thing work, but I'm, I'm working with a client, you know, doing havening or tapping or whatever I'm doing. My intuition might lead me to say something or to ask a question that I never thought to ask. I worked with a client a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I always do this thing where before I see the client, I'll do a little bit of meditation, kind of ask my inner wisdom, what's up? And one of the ways to, to connect with your intuition is to write with your non-dominant hand. So I asked myself, so what do I need to know about this client? And then my, my left hand wrote out, the issue is about his mother. Now, I didn't know that from anybody. I hadn't met this client before on any, any kind of one-on-one basis. And 20 minutes into the session, the client said something about their mother. And that was like the, the cue to unlocking the gateway to help them heal. Yeah. Into it. It, yeah, intu- intuition. You have to trust yourself. I mean, because that, and that's, yeah, and that's one of those things I always say is once you start becoming more happy with yourself, that was the biggest question about a year and a half ago for me. Somebody says, "Do you love yourself?" and uh, and I didn't at that point. I, I I couldn't honestly say that. You know, I liked myself. I thought I was a good person for a lot of reasons. And did I love myself? Nobody ever asked me that. Like, you know, we think that it's so easy for all of us. Uh, or for those who, and it's not, not even, and you have to go through a process. And that was where, uh, I know you were teasing me about it, but the Kluberty uh, process, right? It, it's it's a made-up word. Well, it's not a made-up word anymore. It's going to be trademarked. Yeah, it's a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, we just got to get more people to start using it. Uh, but it really is. We all go through a process in life, and you got to trust that process. You have to yeah. trust yourself, because if you don't trust yourself, you're not going to be able to trust anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Self-trust is the baseline for everything else. And, you know, loving yourself. I mean, loving yourself doesn't mean that you think you're like hot stuff or that you think you're perfect or that you don't acknowledge the fact that like you have your, you know, faults and faults and anybody else. But it's like, I think loving yourself is like, like the sun loves the earth, right? The sun shines its light on the cat, the cobra and the cockroach all, you know? It's like the sun shines its light on everything. And I think you can love yourself like the sun loves the earth. You can just like shine the light of acceptance and love and appreciation on all parts of you, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. So how did you get into Having? You know, you know, through all the techniques, I mean, it, it's... Okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, I, I, I've, been, I've been involved in like lots of things, positive psychology and tapping and a bunch of different modalities. And... I was having a conversation with my friend, John Morgan, who's a brilliant coach who now lives out in Los Angeles. I said, you know, John, you know, I do this stuff with my clients, but what really bothers me, and I get miraculous, amazing results, but there's not enough research. There's not enough neuroscience, you know? And he says, have you ever heard of Ronald Rudin? I said, no. And he said, well, there's this book called When the Past is Always Present. I said, really? And it's about this havening thing, you know? So, I'm talking to John at that moment on the phone and I Google Amazon, that book and order it from Amazon that day. This was like a Friday. The book comes on Monday. And man, I went just nuts because Rudin's theory of traumatic depotentiation based on the idea 
traumatic encoding and this whole synaptic business, that was a missing link for me. And it made so much else that I was doing make sense. And not, not only synaptic defensions apart, but what really, for me, the gift of Rudin's work is Emily and traumatic encoding, understanding how that happens, event, meaning, landscape, landscape, all that, that was the piece. And so I read that book over and over and over because it was the science was really heavy. I didn't quite get it. And then I looked havening up on the web and it was like there was a workshop coming up in like, oh, I was having, I was talking to, I was talking to John, like it was either, Val, it was a week, Valentine's week, right? And there was a workshop coming up in March, like four or five weeks later. And I said, okay, I'm in. And I signed up for the workshop in New York. I think I've met you at that workshop. Yeah, we, we met at that workshop, yeah. 2015, so it's like yep. six years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. That was and my the, first workshop well, as well, yeah. The other thing that I did, because I, I, I had one protocol that I would use in tapping called the Trauma Tree, which was developed by Lindsay Kinney, who's a fabulous tapping practitioner, student, EFT master student, uh, Gary Craig, who I got to work with extensively um, and received my master's certification from her. And um, the trauma tree process is a brilliant process for clearing a bunch of different aspects of a traumatically encoded experience. And it usually takes to clear it with pure tapping. Usually would take, depending on the client, uh, 30 minutes, 35, 30, 30, 25, 35 minutes, probably. You go through all the layers, right? Average client, some are much less, some are much, much faster. And I thought, okay, this havening thing is pretty cool. Oh, I'm sorry. Before I did that, I'm sorry. I got Rudin's book and I had something that really triggered me. I was really upset about something. I don't know what it was. And I did the havening process on myself. And it worked. And it worked pretty thoroughly and pretty quickly. I think it it was, it took me maybe about 10, 12 minutes, like the Paul McKenna video about that. And it was clear. I said, all right, that's interesting for me. Then I tried it with a client with a trauma tree. And the first client I tried it with, the trauma tree cleared in about 20 minutes. So it was faster than the traditional EFT practice. I said, that's interesting. Tried it with another client, same thing. I said, okay, so I've got about a 40% reduction in time to get the same result with this process. And so that kind of got me interested. And so then I, I signed up for the course and, Got to New York, and you know the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we, we met, and that was exactly the same training I went into, and for uh, different re- reasons. So, I how I got to Havening was through uh, who I call the, the the Pied Piper of Havening, at least the early part, uh, Bill Souls. So, oh my, yeah, I love Bill yeah, Bill's awesome, and uh, we're going to be interviewing him as well. Yeah, uh, I had gone to Bill for therapy to, to deal with some of the traumas that I had gone through. And he's like, well, you got to, I have this new thing, this the best thing ever, a sliced bread, his havening, but you got to touch yourself. And I'm like, and at that point I was in so much pain. I was like, right, I'll try anything. Like whatever, yeah, right. whatever you want me to do, spit, you know, sit on my head, spit nickels, right. we'll do it. And yeah. so he starts doing it. And I go also like, are you kidding me? People tell me you go to therapy for like life. Once you get in, you're there for life. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. How, Bill, how am I like feeling so much better, speaking so much better? Like what? He goes, well, you're, you're special. He goes, I'll tell you, you're special. Not everybody buys into it. He, and it's right. really very simple in that 
I did my work not only in his office, but I also took myself and did it there. And I was like, okay, I got to find this. Why is this working? And that's how I got to that first training by saying, okay, if it's working for me, how can I not, you know, look into this and understand it better? And once I started, you know, I remember healing somebody during, they were scared to walk up and down stairs and uh, their husband was there and we, I cleared it. And I was like, no, like, boom. I go, okay, there's something here and let me see where I, I can run with it. And it's been a ride for me as well. It's a beautiful, powerful modality, you know, and the, 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 the fact that Dr. Rudin developed it out of his scientific hypothesis, I think is really significant because most of the other modalities, somebody finds something that works, but they don't really know how it works. You know, EMDR, I don't know how this works. EFT, don't know how this works thought, field therapy, whatever. But Rudin was the opposite. He said, okay, let me look at, let me like figure out from a scientific hypothesis perspective how these pieces go together. And then I'm going to invent this modality that comes out of that. So it's powerful. Yeah, I, I think that's the great thing about the both doctors, Rudin. You know, yeah, Ron is basically, and I've always explained it, he's the lab scientist. You know, he loves the, the, the science behind it. And not that Steve doesn't, but Steve will do the process, the, the techniques and stuff like that. But Ron will talk to you about the, the, sy- the synapses and everything, all the science, the electroceuticals. And, you know, and, and again, I read the book also. And the science, I was like, oh, my God. Like, you had to, like, almost at the beginning, read a page and take a break because it was oh, so yeah. dense. Or a paragraph and take a break. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's completely incredible. And, and I do like it. Uh, to me, it's still one of the better techniques uh, that I use. You've given us lots of seeds. Uh, and you, I did bring up the word, you know, R with, with, with receive. Do you have a favorite R word that you like to use? Because I, I, I always say, Two things is earth and heart are the same letters, just arranged differently, but there's also an R in your heart. And when I talk about it, I talk about rise and resilience and, you know, any other words that you might come up with. My R word is radiance. Awesome. Like shining radiantly like the sun. Radiance, radiance, radiance. Well, you're definitely a radiant human being. Every time I see you, you just glow and you you have the energy and I... Again, it's just great. So I don't want to take up any more. Of it's good to know one, my man. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to take much more of your time. Is there any, you've given us so much uh, wisdom through it. Uh, is there any final message you'd like to give us? Uh, you know, obviously I'm going to share all, all the links, uh, all your personal links, so people can connect to you. But is there any final message you'd like to share with us? Yeah, there is. It's about the world in general. Um, I wrote a poem that's a song years and years ago that the older I get, the more poignant and real it becomes to me. And the song basically goes like this. We have everything we need to build a world that works for all. We have everything it takes right now to answer freedom's call. When with every word and deed, we choose to let the love increase, then within every land and nation, we shall live as one in peace. The idea there is that the missing link between the world we have and the world we want is very simple. It's learning to love ourselves and love one another. And to turn up the love doesn't doesn't mean you start an international movement. To turn up the love means you take a moment to ask yourself, how would love live my life today? 
And then you do the thing you're guided to do. It might be being a little bit more kind to yourself. It might be being more forgiving with, to somebody else. It might be taking a moment for self-care. It might be listening to your intuition when it invites you to do something kind for somebody else. It might involve getting, polit- getting, getting involved politically or whatever. But ask the question, what would love do? And allow your life to be a reflection of love. And I'm not talking about valentine love. I'm talking about, you know, that larger kind of altruistic part of us that is at the core of who we are. That's all about realizing that, you know what? I'm looking through these eyes. You're looking through those eyes, but we're really not different. There's really something about us that is absolutely the same and connected and holy and sacred and valuable. So what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And that's my whole message. Man, I love that. Can't finish that better than that. So I just want to thank you again so much for your, your time, for your, for your knowledge, and always for just your friendship. That's, it, it's really meant more to me than you might ever understand and know. And uh, I just wish you always the best. And I'm always here to support you. Well, I treasure you, David. Thank you so much, man. Have a beautiful day. Okay. And for everybody else who's listening, just remember, listen to all the things that Harry has just shared with us. Find that peace and love. And let love, as I say, that love filter, if we can see through the love filter, which I do talk about, it changes everything. Find that peace, love. And if you're swinging a bat, remember, that's not about violence. It's about taking those stands and understanding it. But make sure you also find that sweet spot. And that sweet spot is definitely going to lead you to love. Wish you the best. Thank you. I am really glad that you're enjoying the show. And I hope you follow us on all the podcast hosting sites. As well as Facebook, Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. Or you can follow me, Uncle Dave, David Chemetsky, at Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse, and www davidshemetsky.com. I also would enjoy for you to contact me if you want to just have some feedback. You need somebody to talk to at peacelovebringabat at gmail.com. Well, my friends, today's journey has come to a close. I hope the seeds of peace and love continue to grow for each one of you. Remember the peace and love surround you that will assist you to rise again. And don't forget to bring a bat for what you believe in. Namaste.